You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. Stand with me with your Bible open to Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading with verse 17. Now, he's already said in verse 16 that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. I've always wondered how people could say that you could get in right standing with God by doing good works. This is not just once, but this is the second time in one verse Paul says this. We're going to come to an even more powerful statement in just a few moments. But notice in verse 17, if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister, minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For if I through the law am dead to the law, or if rather for I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. And then the verses which are of particular concern to us this evening. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Notice all the exchanges that take place here. I'm crucified, yet I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if you still have any shred of loyalty to the idea that anybody could be saved by keeping the laws of God, then let's look at this next verse. I do not frustrate or make void or meaningless the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, that word righteousness there, right standing with God, comes by the law, then Christ is dead or really has died for no reason is dead in vain. In other words, why did he come? He came to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. But if we could be saved by keeping the law, then his death would have been in vain. It would have been purposeless, useless. And so this evening, once again, the law of God and the grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, in the next few moments, our hearts will be lifted up to you. Our heart's desire is that you would find us faithful to your word. My prayer this evening is that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Speak through me. Father, if there is anything in my life or any reason why you could not use me as your instrument tonight, I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would speak in spite of me or instead of me, even removing me, Heavenly Father, if you could get more glory to yourself in that fashion. For, Father, we want to focus our attention totally upon you and what your Word says to us about our wonderful and matchless Savior, Jesus who died on the cross for us and by his death redeemed us, who rose from the grave and by that conquered death so that he might give us eternal life. Father, teach us the meaning of these wonderful verses in your word. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. Now, let me ask you once again to keep your Bible open to Galatians chapter 2. Now, in studying this passage and as I have sought to preach through the book of Galatians, I have wanted to address it uh, literally one verse and sometimes a phrase at a time through each verse. And so this morning we look first of all at the fact that there is a lie which must be exposed. A lie which must be exposed. What was that lie? We read about it in verse 17. The lie is that the law can produce righteousness. 
The reality is that the law only mirrors the heart of a righteous God. It cannot make you righteous. And so we noted, secondly, a loyalty that needs to be examined. First of all, he said, here we are seeking to be justified by Christ. Do we are, if we ourselves are found sinners, in other words, it's Christ who came along after the law and died on the cross and said, just believe me. Has he become a minister of sin? Is he creating more sin? He said, God forbid, may it never be so. And then he says in verse 18, if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So this morning I noted that there is a loyalty which needed to be examined. What is that loyalty? It is that, that, that deep-seated feeling in our hearts still that we can somehow impress God by our good works and therefore God would justify us and take us to heaven. And so the Apostle Paul says, if I go back and if I build again the old works, I have made myself a transgressor. A transgressor in, for two reasons. First of all, I am denying what Jesus said. Secondly, the more laws that I try to follow, the more laws I will break because within me is that sin nature. It just becomes revealed that I am a transgressor. So we examine that loyalty. And finally, this morning, we looked at the law explained. We said the law must be explained. And I noted this morning that the law has three purposes. First of all, the law is indeed a mirror of the righteousness of God. Secondly, we noted that the law is the measurement or the standard by which we see our crookedness. And finally, we noted that the law is the means by which we finally come to a hopeless state and we turn to God. And the Apostle Paul said it this way, for I, through the law, am dead to the law. He said, I finally got to the point where I realized the law had killed me. That I might live unto God. And so the whole purpose of the law, I could wish that every person in this auditorium would have had the opportunity to have gone back in the history of Israel. Somehow, if I could just put you in a time machine, and if I could take you back to a time in history when temple worship, or maybe even earlier, when that worship took place at the tabernacle out there in the wilderness, if I could have taken you to a time when Israel was devoted to God and when they were keeping the law, you would discover it would have been one of the most frustrating experiences for a devoted Jew because every day, seemingly, he would find himself at the temple or earlier at the tabernacle making some kind of sacrifice for some kind of sin that he had committed. It might have been something that he failed to do that he should have done. It might have been something that he did that he should not have done. But the law was so detailed. And what was the purpose of all this? It was to show him that life was absolutely futile. He couldn't even remember all the sins that he committed. And the ones that he did commit kept him constantly at the altar. There was more blood. There was more offering. It was a wearying thing. There were constant offerings. And if that were not enough, Every year, in case anybody forgot anything, they had that one great day of atonement, 
and they had one great sacrifice for the entire nation. It was just a constant reminder of the helpless, hopeless estate of man. And so the purpose of the law is to mirror the righteous heart of God. It is indeed the perfect way to live, but it is the measurement because we see how imperfect we are. And finally, it, because of that, it is the means of pointing us to God and saying, God, if I'm going to make it to heaven, you're going to have to do something in my life. I cannot keep all these laws. I can't remember all the things I ought to do. I can't avoid all the things that I ought not to do. I am helplessly, hopelessly lost. And so the great purpose of the law is fulfilled when in deep conviction of sin, you turn to God and say, God, something has got to happen. You have got to perform a miracle in my life. Something has got to happen or I will never be saved. I will never go to heaven unless you do something in my life. And so that is the purpose of the law. Now, you will appreciate the law and it will become to you something not to dread but something to light when you experience the exchanged life. And so he said, first of all, a lie must be exposed. Secondly, a loyalty needs to be examined. Thirdly, the law needs to be explained. And now, uh, fourthly, I want to share with you that a life must be exchanged. And what I'd like to do in these next few moments is to zero in on what I believe is one of the most central and important verses in all of the Scripture. And yet, to many people, it is one of the most confusing verses in the entire New Testament. Look with me at verse 20. There the Apostle Paul says, For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So with your Bible open, let's focus our attention on Galatians 2, verse 20. Someone said uh, on one occasion that what I do every morning is I go to the electric chair and I plug it into 220. If you ask what that means, he says, well, I plug it in to Galatians 220. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Perhaps one of the world's greatest missionary statesmen was a man by the name of Hudson Taylor. It was Hudson Taylor who said, I will go down to the well of lostness of mankind if back home there will be those who will hold the ropes. And Hudson Taylor became the founder of the China Inland Mission. By the way, vestiges of the China Inland Mission remain to this day. The Overseas Mission Fellowship is uh, an organization that is in existence because of formerly of the work of the China Inland Mission. Now, Hudson Taylor went to China when <clears throat> the methods of transportation were very minimal. Much of the travel that he, that he employed was just simply either walking or being pulled in a cart or riding on the back of some beast of burden. Uh, in those days, if you would send a letter, for instance, from England, a letter of support with money in it over to China, it might be a year or two before that letter would ever be handed to you because there was no uh, reliable means of transporting the mail in that fashion. 
There came a time when Hudson Taylor lost almost all of his support for that mission work. And by the way, it has always intrigued me that for three years, when missionaries and mission work themselves were in disfavor in England, there was one man in England who almost single-handedly supported Hudson Taylor and the dozen or so missionaries who were in China at that time with his organization. And it was surprised you to know who that man is because he himself was seeing to the needs of 2,000 orphans, and that man was George Mueller. And George Mueller, by faith, trusted God to provide resources so that he, in addition to the orphan work, he could send money over to support Hudson Taylor in his great missionary enterprise over in China. There he was, swallowed up in the very guts of China, isolated from most of the people, many people depending on him. There came a time when because of that pressure, and I'm not the least bit surprised at this, Hudson Taylor had what we would call an emotional breakdown, a, a, a collapse which took its toll not only emotionally, spiritually, but also physically. He was brought back to England. He came to a time when lying in the bed, he could scarcely move a muscle. And during that time, he began to call out to God, and God gave him a verse. It is this verse, Galatians 2.20. And Hudson Taylor later wrote to his sister because he, he recovered his strength. He went back to do his greatest mission work in China. And in recovering his strength, he wrote to his sister and he said, I have learned that the secret is the exchanged life. And he quoted this verse, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I believe I'm speaking this evening to many people who are burdened down. You may be a student and you're facing all kinds of difficulties. There are some things that are, that are wonderful about these student days. There are some things perhaps that are bitter and confusing and perplexing. You may be a single person here tonight. Maybe your marriage has been tragically split apart because of divorce. It could be that your mate has passed away and you're in the later years of your life. But yet there are questions you have and there are burdens and there are perplexities to you and there are lonely, lonely hours when you call out to God and you know He is there. But you wonder, can life ever be as good as it was before? And this message tonight is for you, the secret of the exchanged life, which is the fourth statement which you're making. There are some of you here this evening whose businesses are on the verge of collapse. You don't know which way to turn. Maybe you're, you're pointing uh, or facing great business decisions. And maybe your business is thriving, but you realize one wrong decision, and it all goes down the tubes. And the pressure is just upon you. Maybe there are uh, problems with your supervisors or with your employees, and you are so perplexed, and you wonder, can I enjoy victory with all of these things going on in my life. Maybe there are career issues that some of you are facing this evening. Maybe physical problems or financial problems. And you're wondering, is there victory for me? Well, there is victory for you, but the secret is in the exchanged life. Now, let me just say that the Apostle Paul has put this verse in this particular position in his letter 
because he wants the Christians in Galatia to realize that the secret to the Christian life is this great exchange that takes place when you are born again. Now, with that background, let me ask you to look with me at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the exchange life. And then Wednesday evening, our next service, we're going to talk about the Lord who must be exalted. That's the last part of this message. Now, the exchange life. What I'm going to do in these next few moments is deal with three very critical Bible doctrines. If you do not understand and employ these three critical Bible doctrines, you will come up short of all that you could experience in Christ Jesus. In brief, these three doctrines are as follows. First of all, the, what I want to call, and this is so very important, the doctrine of representation, all right? That is how Jesus represented us on the cross, the doctrine of representation. Secondly, there is the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of redemption. This is what happened when Jesus died on the cross that relates to me. I mean, how could something happening 2,000 years ago have any effect on me whatsoever? So the doctrine of representation, the doctrine of redemption. The third doctrine is the doctrine of residency. How can Christ really dwell within me? I mean, that is a mystery. You mean Jesus actually lives within me. What does that mean? And so in each of these areas, in the doctrine of representation, the doctrine of redemption, and the doctrine of residency, we are going to be looking at an exchange which takes place the moment you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus as your Savior. All right? So with your Bible open, let's look at this verse a phrase at a time. We're just going to walk through this verse because it's so critical for us and especially for our understanding of the book of Revelation. First of all, the exchange life means that when you become a Christian, that is when you repent of your sin and receive Christ by faith, your, now listen to this, your reckoning is exchanged for Christ's representation. Your reckoning is exchanged for Christ's representation. Now listen to this phrase. I am crucified with Christ. Now what is your reckoning? All right, here is the reckoning that every person faces. The wages of sin is death. Is there anybody here that is not a sinner? No, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one, right out of the Scripture. We know that we, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. What is the reckoning every one of us faces? We must reckon with our sins. And the wages of sin is what? Let's say it. It is death. The wages of sin is death. Not just physical death. We're not talking about physical death, primarily even. We're talking about being separated, not just from this body, but being separated from God, the Bible tells us, in hell forever. Now, without going into the doctrine of hell and without even going into the doctrine of eternity, with exception to say that it's very hard for you and for me to understand eternity because, you see, everything that we know about has a beginning and an end. 
a start and a finish. If you were born in this auditorium, if you never had the privilege of getting outside this auditorium, somebody could come inside this auditorium and talk to you about the moon and the stars and the sun and the sky. Now, you would have a very difficult time comprehending that. Not because they don't exist, but because you're just born in this room. And they would try to use, they'd say the sky is like that ceiling up there and the stars are like those lights up there, but just like them, not really. And you would try to understand stars and moon and sun and sky, but you couldn't because you had always been in this room. Now, the universe is a room also. It is a larger room. It was created by God. As such, it has a beginning point. It will have an ending point. We have birth, we have death. We have a start, we have a finish. But I want to remind you that the Creator is above. He's beyond. He's outside. He is greater than anything that He ever creates. And so we have a hard time comprehending eternity, for instance, which is a characteristic of God, a characteristic of heaven, a characteristic of hell. We have a hard time comprehending it because we live in this room that has time in it, you see. But God is beyond time. God created time when the world was created. I mean, we measure time by things that the world that are created, such as the earth spinning or revolving around the sun, you see. God is beyond that. And I don't want to deal so much with the reality of hell or the reality of eternity except to say that the wages of sin is death. That is a reckoning that every person in this auditorium faces because every person here in this auditorium is a sinner. Why are you a sinner? You are a sinner because the very first man on the face of this earth, Adam, chose to sin. And the Bible says in Adam, all die. Now, there is a phrase which you will do well to remember. It's a, it's a, a strange-sounding phrase. Adam is the federal head of our race. What does that mean, that Adam is the federal head of that, our race? It means that what Adam did stands for and is and was stands for what I am, what I will be, and what I do. Let me give you an illustration. Some of you all are looking at me like a calf looks at a new gate. Let me give you an illustration. Um, Robert, did the Cowboys win today? Yeah, Okay. He's gonna, I'm going to have to live with him because my team is having a very hard year. Um, when I see him tomorrow in the office, I'm going to avoid him, first of all, as much as I can. But here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, we won, you lost. As if I was on the football field. Or as if he... <laughs> now, you, can, you know, I look pretty much like a football player. Robert, not at all. Or as if he was on the football player. We won. We lost. Well, we didn't win. We didn't lose. They won or lost. We watched. But there's a sense in which we say we did that because they represent us. That's our team, you see. Well, that's his team, not mine. All right? Now, we say, for instance, when we sat at the peace table, what do we mean by when we sat at the peace table? Did you sit at the peace table? No. But we sent federal represent representatives to sit at a peace table and sign a peace treaty. We've done that historically at the end of a war. 
And what those people did federally represents us all. All right? It stands for us all. Now, Adam is the federal head of the human race. And what he did when he sinned affected you here thousands of years later because you're a sinner. In Adam, we all die. All right, do you understand what I'm saying? When he sinned, the human stream was tainted from that moment on. We all became sinners. You didn't have to go out and commit a sin to become a sinner. You committed any sin you've ever committed because you are a sinner already in your heart. You are a rebel against God. By the way, let me tell you something. When Adam sinned, God didn't say, oh, rats, that's going to make it a lot harder for man to live a perfect life on this earth. No, there was no more chance. Adam was the father of us all. When he sinned, it became the nature of every one of us to sin. Are you with me? Nod your head if you say yes. I am with you, all right? Some of you are not nodding your head. He, the sin of Adam, affected me. It affected you. He is the federal head of the race. So when Adam sinned, that stood, stood for all of us. And he represented us there in the Garden of Eden. Now, in the same manner, Christ is the federal head of the church. So when, when I read in the Bible that the wages of sin, including my sin, the wages of sin are death, that means I have got to die. But Christ, as the federal head of the church, just like some federal representative who went to a treaty table and signed a treaty table and affected everything that I do here in the United States, when Christ, who was perfect, who never did sin, when he died on the cross as payment for sin, listen, that was my payment for my sin. Because I receive Christ by faith as my Savior. This is the doctrine of representation. The Bible says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so the great exchange that takes place when I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior is this. I exchange my reckoning for His representation. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I am crucified with Christ. When the devil comes to me and says, Tom, you've got to pay for your sins, I can say to him, my sins were paid for. When were they paid for? They were paid for 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ, my Lord, my Savior, in whom I have put my trust, when Jesus died on the cross, I died. All of my sin was paid for. I do not have to come, you, do not, you cannot come along and make me pay for a sins that have already been paid for. Jesus suffered, the Scripture says, in 1 Peter 3, 18, one time for all the just, that's Jesus, for the unjust, that's you and me, that he might bring us to God. So I exchange my reckoning for his representation. And those of you who say, well... What I need to do is keep all these laws, and if I keep them, I'll feel good. If I don't keep them, I'll feel bad. I'll have to sort of feel bad. That's sort of my punishment for not being a good boy. Listen, friend, there is a sense in which when we fall out of fellowship, there is great distress of soul. But let me tell you something. 
God, listen, God never punishes his children because all of the punishment for all of sin, for all of time was put upon Jesus on the cross. He took it to the cross for me and for you. I exchanged my reckoning for his representation on the cross. That is one exchange that takes place when I trust in Jesus as my Savior. I am crucified with Christ. When he died, that is just as if I died as payment for the sin. I satisfied the law. The wages of sin is death. Christ died for sinners. All the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so I exchanged my reckoning, which is out, would be out there in the future. When I died or when Jesus came, I'd be judged for my sin. I'd go to hell forever. Jesus already took my punishment to the cross. All right? And so my reckoning is exchanged for his representation. Number two, my ruin is exchanged for his redemption. My ruin is exchanged for his redemption. Notice what he says here. I am crucified with Christ. That's representation. Secondly, nevertheless, I live. Now, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He that believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, let me explain to you what happened when Jesus died on the cross. The Bible says that every person, because every person is a sinner, is sold under sin. You are a slave to sin. I tell you, one of the things that, that, that to me was so horrible about slavery, and I, it's such a morbid, awful thought, slavery. Can you imagine putting humans in bondage? Terrible thing. One of the things that to me was most horrible about that is there were, there, were, there were auction blocks. And can you imagine? It's not the first time in history, not only here in the United States, but human bondage, people actually standing on a, a, an auction block and being sold into slavery, human bondage. Now, with that picture in your mind, let me tell you that there is a sense in which every person in this auditorium was sold into bondage. Sin had dominion over you, rulership over you, now, the wages of sin is death. And so when Christ died, not only did I exchange my reckoning for his representation, I exchanged my ruin, my awful, wicked life with sin as a master over me. I exchanged my I ruin when Jesus died for his redemption. Now, this word redeemer or redemption is a word which is filled with such beautiful meaning, if you understand it. Because the Bible says that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, our redeemer who is next of kin. Do you know what that means? In those days, when a man would commit a crime, they would imprison him. 
And now that he was in prison, they would go to his house, and on the doorpost of that house, they would write the crime of that man and what would be necessary to release him from his imprisonment. If he'd stolen, let's say, five cows, then somebody was going to have to repay with five cows. The man was in prison. Down there in the courthouse, wherever, whatever it was like, there was a wax tablet. The name of the man was put in that wax tablet. His crime was put out beside it and his sentence. Now, what would happen would be then that they would go to his nearest kin, his next of kin, and his kin was given the opportunity to redeem him. Now, you've got to know that this man languishing away there in prison sure hoped his next of kin would redeem him. His next of kin could say, I don't want to. I don't want to. You read the story of Ruth to read about that. But the next of kin could say, I don't want to do that. If the next of kin said, I will not do it, that man could spend the rest of his life in prison, for instance. Hopefully, however, the next of kin would say, I will do it. When he would choose to do that, he became what was called the kinsman redeemer. And he would pay back those cows one at a time, and they would check it off on that uh, piece of paper on the doorpost on that man's house. When the last payment was made, two, three things really happened simultaneously. First of all, down at the courthouse, they would blot out the record of that crime. He puts our sins behind him. He remembers them no more. He separates us from them as far as the east is from the west. He blots out our transgressions. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. They would take a thumb or a stylus and they would just mark out that crime. It would be just as if the man had never committed the crime just as if, justified. On the doorpost, they would write the equivalent of what Jesus said in the cross, on the cross. Now, the, the uh, Hebrew word would be paid in full. The Greek word for that was tetelestai, which is translated as what Jesus said on the cross, we read it in our Bible, it is finished, it is the word tetelestai. They would write that across the doorpost, paid in full. And the prison doors would open and the man was free to go because he had been redeemed. He had been bought off or out of slavery. Now, why can Paul say, I am crucified with Christ because he exchanged his reckoning with Christ's representation. Why can he say, nevertheless, I live? Because he has exchanged his ruin, sold under sin, ultimately to die under sin for Christ's redemption. He has come to set us free that we might have life eternally. How did he do that? He did that by paying the price in full. Unlike a kinsman redeemer who said, I won't go, the apostle Paul says in Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8, you ought to let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, who didn't think staying in heaven and being equal to God was so important that it was to be hung on to at the expense of not coming to this earth and dying on the cross, but he was willing to make himself of no reputation and take upon himself the form of a man and become a servant and become obedient unto death, not just any death, 
but the death of the cross, the worst kind of death. Wherefore, he says, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of things in heaven, things on earth and things under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise God for our kinsman redeemer. Don't you rejoice that Jesus was willing to come to this earth and die on the cross for us. And when I trust Jesus as my Savior, I exchange my ruin on that slave block for his blessed redemption. Oh, but there's more. Notice he says, I exchange my reckoning for his representation. I exchange my ruin for his redemption. Now notice this. I exchange my rule, that is my rule of my life, for his residency or reign in my life. Now notice what he says here. I am crucified with Christ, doctrine of representation. Nevertheless, I live, doctrine of redemption. Here's the next exchange. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I exchanged my rule of my life for his residency, and as a friend of mine says, his presidency over my life. My rule, running my life my way for his residency, his living within me. Now, friends, listen. In no other religion and in no other pseudo-religion in all of this world do you have the wonderful miracle of an indwelling God. Christ comes to dwell within you. You see, when you become a Christian, that doesn't mean that your head just gets filled with religious thoughts. It doesn't mean that you just one day are going to go to heaven when you die. It doesn't mean that God's going to somehow give you some high-octane spirituality to make you try hard to live a better life. It means that Jesus, by a wonderful act of his Holy Spirit, literally comes to dwell inside you. And you exchange your rule of your life for his residency and reign over your life. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ lives in me. Let me try to illustrate it this way. I've used this illustration. It's sort of gross, but I've used it to try to understand, help you understand what happens when, by the work of the Holy Spirit, Christ comes to dwell within you. When you become a Christian, you receive Christ in his fullness by an act, by the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I want to remind you that Christ went out of a few men's presence physically so that he could be in the lives of all of us spiritually. Now, you don't get more and more of Jesus the longer you live as a Christian. However, Jesus should get more and more of you with every passing day. Perhaps this illustration will help you to understand it. If I could cut out a sponge the size and shape of my body and then wad it up into a little ball and somehow by the hardest swallow it, I could say honestly that all of the sponge is in me. It's there. 
But now I would not initially say that that sponge is in all of me because it might be hung here in my esophagus or it might be in my abdomen or something like that. But now in, in Paris, the thought, you know, let's suppose that those walls of resistance begin to deteriorate and give way. It's just sort of gross, and I know some of you haven't even eaten supper yet. But after a while, there's no obstruction, and so pretty soon part of that sponge is cut out the size of my arm, pops into my arm. Another part pops into this arm. Some of you think it's already popped into my head. It pops into my legs. Now, not only is all of the sponge in me, but because there is no resistance, the sponge is in all of me. Now listen, when you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. Not a part of Him, but all of Him. But the longer you live, the more the Holy Spirit is going to show you as Christ is magnified, lifted up in your life, as you study the Word of God, as you surrender to Him, the more the Holy Spirit is going to show you areas of your life where Christ is not allowed to take control. And your responsibility is to have that Jesus who is resident within you also president, ruling and reigning. The great exchange is this, friends. When Jesus comes into your life, you get out of the driver's seat, you get off the throne of your life, you get out of the corporation presidency of your life, and Jesus gets in the driver's seat at the captain helm on the throne in the chair of the presidency of your life. He takes over your life. And so the great exchanges, I exchange what? Why? I exchange my reckoning for his representation. When Jesus died, that was just as if I died. I exchange my ruin, sold on the slave market. I exchange my ruin for his redemption. He bought me with his own blood, and the result is that I have his eternal life, his resurrected life within me. And I exchange my rule of my life for his residency and reign in my life. That's nevertheless not I, but Christ lives in me. You say, well, how can all that take place? It all takes place by faith. The life I now live in this flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you know what? The sad thing is that unless some here in this service, this service this very evening, make that faith exchange, repenting of your way, trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, you will leave here just as burdened down or even more so than when you came. You will go out thinking there is still some way I can please God, some way I can convince God he ought to take me to heaven. Friend, let me just tell you something. There is only one way, and that one way is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Not a plan, but a man. And if this evening you have never made that decision to receive Christ by faith as your Savior, I want to encourage you when we stand in a few moments to come to this altar, find one of these counselors, and just tell them, I want to make that great exchange. I want to trust in Jesus as my Savior. It could be that there are those of you here this evening who would say, you know, I have been living so far below what God has given me. Why, I realize now all that Jesus did for me on the cross and by his resurrected life and by the fact that he lives within me. And I've been struggling. I put myself under bondage and I want to, I want to surrender to the Lordship of Christ this evening. This altar is open for you. 
And those of you who come to receive Christ will not be alone. There'll be others who'll be coming to say, look, I believe or we believe that the Lord wants us in this church or wants me in this church. You find a counselor here at the front. Find out what it means to be a part of this church. Dear friend, you can go away knowing that God has planted your life in a church where you can serve and be blessed and minister with and to others and receive a ministry from them. I would encourage you to make that decision this evening, to receive Christ or to join this church. Also joining us here at this altar will be those of you who've made decisions in earlier services or you've been baptized. Since that time, we've not had the privilege of introducing you to our church family. I'm going to ask you to come on the very first stanza and just be seated right over here to my left, to your right, where it says seating for new members. And we want to introduce you in just a few moments to our church and your new church family. Let's pray together. And when I say amen, we're going to stand together. We're going to begin singing. I'd like for us to sing that invitation hymn, which you, you know very well. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. I am, I, thou art the potter, I am the clay. In other words, Lord, just make me and mold me after your will. I'm waiting. Yielded and still. Your invitation to say yes to Christ this evening. Father in heaven, my prayer is that your Holy Spirit, moving in power during these moments, will touch the heart of men and women and boys and girls. Bring them to this altar to say yes to Jesus. Bring them to this altar to say yes to your Lordship, to become a part of a church where they can serve. Dear Lord, at this very precious and special time of invitation, we are trusting your Holy Spirit to do his work among us and in our hearts. And I pray it in Jesus' name.